Welcome to Path to PMF, a podcast by Lightspeed, bringing to you a treasure trove of learnings and insights from a founder's journey to finding a product market fit. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Path to PMF. My name is Harsha Kumar. I'm a partner with Lightspeed, uh, and I'm here today with my co-host, Anshumani Rudra, a product manager at Google. Today's episode is a special one for me. Where do you go if you want to learn how to fly drones or do 3D rendering or figure out uh, what right, what's the right wine to pair with your food? Um, and for a lot of us, the answer is Teachable. And Teachable is a very special company when you think about it because Teachable uh, was quite ahead of its time and was going after the creator economy even before the term creator economy was commonly used. And I've always wondered how that idea came about, uh, what was the fundraising like, uh, was the journey easy, difficult? Um, how was PMF really achieved? Uh, so it gives me great pleasure uh, to invite Ankur Nakpal, the founder of Teachable. Ankur today is also a prolific investor through his fund Vibe Capital. Ankur, welcome to Path to PMF. Uh, thanks, guys. Super excited to be here. Good to have you here. Good to have you here. So, you know, one of the things in, in, in you know, in Path to PMF that we've always liked doing is sort of trying to figure out, uh, you know, the journey that sort of got you into, you know, building your first product. Uh, so take us through that sort of what led to the genesis of Teachable, right? And, yeah. uh, and then we, we'll sort of get deeper into how did you find product market fit, but would love to understand sort of what started this. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's sort of two stages, right? So I mean, for a little bit of background, I was born in Bombay, never lived in India, actually grew up in Oman, the Middle East, moved to America to go to college in 2006, 2007. Um, and at the time, I mean, I first thought, look, you know, like, maybe I'll get a job, maybe I'll be an engineer somewhere. And it was my first summer that I was interning at Amazon as a freshman after my first year of college. Um, that was when Facebook launched the Facebook platform and I'm probably aging myself a little bit, but for those that remember, I mean, you could, you could build applications and, you know, all the people on Facebook could use it, invite each other. And that was a really pivotal summer for me because I created an application like a, like a good Indian kid. The first application I created was a fantasy cricket app actually. Um, but by the end of that summer, something interesting happened. All these applications started getting a little bit of traction. They were used by a few people and I was making, I don't know, 10 or $20 a day. But that completely sort of blew my mind that I could do, and this sounds trivial today, but like I could do things on the internet and earn a living. I was like, why would I ever get a job again if I could just like sit at home, you know, build things on the internet? So pretty much since then, at the age of 18, it set me down this path of like always sort of building and, you know, building different products, ideas, all of that. Um, so for Teachable specifically, you know, I think I was 22, 23 at the time. I'd moved to New York City and I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to start a company and I started to do a little bit of teaching. I was teaching in person at General Assembly. I had a couple of courses on Udemy that we then stumbled into sort of teachable almost accidentally where I built this as a, as a product for me and a friend of mine to take our courses that were on Udemy at the time and um, put it on our own website and then sort of almost stumbled into this side project becoming a startup. The graph was always growing, but was there an inflection point? Was there something, was there a specific sort of instance or was it a series of instances for you to sort of feel like this is it, this is working? Yeah. So I think the analogy I can think of a little bit is early on, right? Like imagine like there's a car that you keep kind of trying to push, push, push and make it to make it move forward. At some point you just let it go and it's still moving. And that's sort of how a GMP graph worked where early on, we brute force the hell out of everything. Like as in, we would work so hard to ensure that 
next month's graph looked better. And at a certain point, we just let it go and it kept growing. And that's when we, you know, we saw that this was really working. In terms of specific inflection points, I mean, there were a couple, which again, you can look back and sort of see. One very, this is probably very tactical. We found that when we changed our pricing plans to allow for us taking our take rate to zero on our highest plan, that was a big inflection point in the number of creators that took us seriously as a platform. And you can sort of see our revenue graph change very dramatically after that point. So that was definitely that was definitely one of the one of the inflection points. But otherwise, honestly, it was a lot of like, you know, the whole Paul Graham, you do lots of unscalable things early on, and we just brute force so much of that. I mean, one of the other anecdotes I remember is I think this was month eight or nine, and we and at the time we were small, we knew everyone on our platform. And we knew no one was launching a product in the next month. This was going to be a problem for us because you know our GMV would fall off a cliff. So what we did is we contacted our, our top selling instructor and we're like, hey, is there anything we can get you to you know create a course? They're like, well, we don't have anything in the pipeline. And we're like, what if we actually come and create a course with you? So for Thanksgiving, me and my partner Conrad, we flew to Berlin that week. Um, ended up you know staying in the apartment of our our creators at the time. We ended up becoming good friends in the process. Recorded a course just so we would have something to sell the next month. So early on, we did a lot of these very 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 unscalable things. Um, but at some point, I feel like we you know literally brute forced our way to product market fit in a lot of ways by you know almost not taking no for an answer and and you know finding that. Um, this other second big inflection point for us is a lot of. And look, as a startup, you have to sort of find your growth channels and every startup has, you know, their own channels. Something unique we found that was different from a lot of other companies is we found our, uh, we had a class of customers that were very influential in bringing us other customers. So an example would be if we got someone who taught online business courses or taught other course creators, they were huge for our business because they in turn could promote Teachable to their entire product. So that was sort of a unique growth channel that worked very well for us, better than any other startup. So once we discovered how to leverage that, that was another big, big inflection point. So partnering with someone like, call it a Pat Flynn. If you look him up, he's got a very big popular business podcast that teaches other people how to start online businesses. Those sorts of partnerships were our sort of second big inflection point. I'm just, uh, I'm curious, Ankur, you mentioned, uh, especially the anecdote that you shared where, you know, you were talking to someone and they didn't really have a pipeline of courses and you had to offer yep. to build one. I'm always yep. wondering if, you know, back in 2013, I think that's when, you know, you yep. kicked off. Uh, I feel like the term creator economy didn't even exist, right? Like today, yep. it's this, yep. this hot topic and everybody's building yep. for the creator economy. Did you ever feel that you were, let's say, you know, early for your time or ahead of your time and if you did sort of how did you build comfort with you know or how did you convince yourself that there was a market for the product right and especially if, for categories that are not already you know already very popular already very big yep. i think a lot of the ed tech companies back then were still struggling how do you then convince yep. yourself this is going to happen this is going to happen for you right i'd love to understand yep your framework as you thought through whether there is a market for your product. Yep, absolutely. So it's, it's one of those things that like in retrospect, you look a bit genius, you know, like we're early. I think candidly, we're just lucky in a lot of ways. We didn't even sort of, we almost stumbled into this. Like I would love to say, you know, we consciously like foresaw the creator economy and all of that. Um, but no, early on, it was more like we saw Udemy, we saw these platforms and we're like, hey, you can't build a real business here. You, you know, it's great for distribution, but you can't build an actual business. Let's help people build a business there 
now let's say year two is when we stumbled into realizing how big the market opportunity was. So very often you sort of have this myth that you know the founder sees this massive market opportunity and all of that. For us, we were trying to solve a narrow problem. And then we're like, oh, wait a second, this is actually bigger than we first thought it would be. So from that lens, I think we got sort of very lucky. But then once we realized that, did we sort of have this realization that, hey, all these people, you know, built a large business. Historically, people built all these businesses selling physical goods. We're moving to a future where people will make as much money, find more money selling something from their brain, selling their knowledge, selling their expertise. So we stumbled into this. Like it was not intentional at all. But once we stumbled into this, we were like, you know what? Like we got very, very fortunate. Uh, let's not mess up this opportunity. Like not a lot of people. And again, having built or tried to build a startup for a few years and having nothing work almost makes you appreciate this because you sort of realize how fortunate you are when you do find something that is working. Yeah. Um, so from that point, it's uh, okay. Like we have this massive opportunity. Let's not mess it up. I want to I want to double click on that feeling a little bit, Ankur. Where you know a founder is at this point where you don't really know whether what you're going after is going to work, right? You're yep. in this phase of uncertainty. What did you tell yourself to keep yourself going, right? Or what what helped you to keep yourself so, going? So, and this is an interesting question because I I have a few friends that are trying to start companies as well, and they, you know like been helping them out a little bit with how do you sort of de-risk. I did not de-risk, but like, would you like again? The most likely reason you're not going to build anything is you're going to give up. So, what do you do to make yourself not give up? Um, and I think what was helpful for me was to sort of build the right social capital around me that helped me keep going. So, for me, it was um, Conrad who ended up becoming a co-founder. He was my founding customer, uh, but mm, as a result, for the first six months, we worked next to each other. We worked next to each other every day. So it's very motivating yeah. and to have your customer physically present with you. So you're always building something for them. And having that feedback loop happen, but like from an advice perspective, my advice to a lot of people who want to start something is, if possible, find the right co-founder. But if not, create the right sort of social capital around you that makes it easier to keep going. Because the most likely reason you're going to give up is because you don't sort of have that forcing factor around you. You don't have someone you know sort of pushing you to continue going. So that was most helpful for us. The other thing that frankly made all the difference is again we had. A graph that was going up and to the right. If I look back, all the times I've given up on something, it's when you know things were not going well, when things were not going in that direction. So I think yeah. the fact that it was fundamentally working also is what kept me going. I guess that's the thing, right? Uh, I guess the dilemma that most founders would end up facing is how do you distinguish between sort of grit and just stubbornness, right? Like grit is where yep. things are not really yep. working yet, but you believe they will work someday. Yep. And you're yep. maybe being stubborn with if basically everyone around you is telling you not going to happen. Yep. Uh, it's just hard to distinguish. But I completely get you, get you when you say yeah. you know finding yeah. the right co-founder, yep. surrounding yourself with the right people, having the right social capital can yep. make a huge yep. difference. Um, yep. Absolutely. But people who. By the way, who, I also now I also now do think I also now do think there's sometimes people have uh, there's also something is too much grit. Like I have now seen a few founders where frankly. I think they should pivot, but you we almost sometimes promote this somewhat damaging narrative of like you know the whether you yeah. want to call it hustle porn or whatever, where you just kind of keep going. Where look, we live in a world of unlimited opportunity. If something doesn't work, I think there's no shame in trying something different versus continuing to persist. Especially I mean, the age of the internet, where each new idea doesn't cost you different as you know uh, linearly more to try. So yeah, I think you want to obviously have grit, but also also 
not be stubborn and try different things when something's not working. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The first sort of thing I have as a you know being a founder first, and then then becoming an investor, and I mean this with all the respect to to, to you all at Lightspeed, is I I I've realized at least from my perspective, being an investor is at least ten times easier. So as a result, <laughs> as as a result, I think I think one I sort of start with a default empathy for the founder because I just sort of realize how hard it is and. Again, like I've been on the side of like it's it's very demoralizing to you know sort of lay your soul and pitch your company and all of that and you know especially when decisions don't go your way. So I think that that is definitely sort of one thing. Even as an investor, I've tried to align myself with my founders, where I'm like, look, at the end of the day, we're we're I'm a founder first. I will always identify as a founder first, and that sort of even from the way I invest, like that will always sort of be my decision making framework and all of that. In terms of the sort of products I look at and all of and all of that, I mean, again, for me, and this is also back to the kind of entrepreneur I was. Growth is very, very important. Like, there's a lot of sort of people who come from the mindset of you know, build a good product and the growth will follow. I'm very much a go-to-market focused founder. So what I look for is you know, are these the right people who can build something that either is growing or will grow very fast? And for me, that's sort of the the thing that gets me most excited. Uh, when you look at either the numbers or just the product, in your opinion, that uh, that sort of give the right signals to answer these questions. So the one thing that I mean, so a few different things. One, I mean, obviously, want to see like, are these you know, are these the founders that are these the right founders for the business, which is a collection of tangibles and intangibles, but really ultimately, like, are these people where every time I talk to them, it feels like they've made progress, right? And I think that's. Which is why sometimes you know I may not end up investing in someone right after the first conversation, but a month or two later, you sort of see the rate at which they're changing, and that's a pretty big signal. Um, another another version of that is I found that teams that iterate faster, that ship faster, end up you know stumbling into success and product market fit much much quicker. Um, those are sort of early early indicators that I that I like to look for. Great. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and you know something that you uh, I stumbled upon on your Twitter thread was how how much you are sort of how gung ho you are about the Indian tech ecosystem and the fact that you know you've been investing a lot uh, in the Indian tech yep. ecosystem. Uh, take us through that, and and I want to connect it to the previous question, right? Which is uh, what is what is sort of more exciting to you when you look at uh, markets like India? And you know, before we started this call, you said that you're taking this call from Mexico City, and you know, it, it has a great sort of uh, startup culture developing there. And, you know, you work with a company which is sort yep. of so popular in South America. So, so yep. tell me a bit about sort of how are you seeing this emerge? Yeah, so I think I think let's let's for a second go back to like venture capital, right? Like what is venture capital a tool for? Venture capital is not a tool for every business. It's not a tool for all kinds of companies. It's a tool for companies where um, for whatever reason, you tend to grow very, very fast. And you end up having to scale much, much quicker, and you go from building, you know, nothing to something very, very large in a very short period of time, including a lot of discomfort that comes with that. And my fundamental thesis is venture capital as a tool, in some ways, is better suited to markets like India than a lot of parts in the world, right? Like, I mean, think about it when you have when you have regions that have come online very drastically with massive populations where companies can get really, really, really big, really fast. That is what this this tool set is for, and as a result, I'm very excited about you know applying venture capital to you know markets like India. Secondly, and this is more of a personal note. 
I mean, I moved to America 12, 13 years ago and um, having, and America, again, I wouldn't be where I was if not for being in America. I mean, I'm now, I'm now a citizen. I'm very, very grateful for the opportunities afforded to me by this country. But this country has a way of, not this country, Mexico, but America has a way of like sucking you into like its warped view where you think America is the be all and end all of the world. And I'm also trying to reset that a little bit because it's a big world out there. So both those reasons, I'm very, very excited about investing in, in emerging markets. I mean, India, the thing I think that's fascinating that again, it's not secret to anyone on this call, but like even something like a B2B app in India, like, I mean, you think about like, you know, Kata Book, anything sort of catering to like small businesses, the distribution curve of that is like a consumer app elsewhere in the world. That's fascinating to me that, you know, you sort of like the market sizes are so different that a B2B app in India can behave like a B2C app elsewhere. Um, so for that reason, and, you know, many others, I'm, you know, excited to continue investing in the region. I'm just, uh, I'm curious, I'm sure you've spent so much time in EdTech. I think this, uh, this is a question that we thought we just had to ask you. Um, where do you think EdTech as a market is headed? And what are some of the major trends we will see in this industry in, in the coming years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, the caveat that even though Teachable is EdTech, we always thought of ourselves as creator economy more. Early on, it was something we did for fundraising. We just thought like EdTech was not a sexy place to fundraise from. So let's pitch ourselves as a creative economy company instead of EdTech. Eventually, it almost became our reality as what we were doing just deviated further and further away from education. Um, for me as an investor, I mean, I'm pretty bullish again on emerging market EdTech, less so uh, US EdTech, where you have to spend so much time sort of selling to school districts where it just starts to look like this enterprise sales business that I personally have never been sort of very, very excited by. Um, but in terms of the future of EdTech, I think I think a few different things, right? I think that the one theme that really interests me is we're moving to a very sort of globalized world. Um, we're moving, especially to a world where physical location starts to matter less and less, especially as you start having families. I have a lot of friends right now, some of whom have young kids, some of whom may have young kids, who, for instance, are traveling a lot, living out of different cities, different countries, every three months, every six months. I think the entire education stack will sort of be rebuilt for this use case as well, which I think will be very interesting. Um, secondly, I think we're starting to see traditional credentialism matter less and less. I think, again, I think India still credential probably arguably matters a little bit more than it does in the States, but even that, you know, will continue to evolve and seeing how that changes, I think will also be very interesting. Um, I think the third thing that will change is we're starting to see where like anything that you can do to sort of take the curiosity that, you know, young children have and sort of encourage that further to produce outsized outcomes. I think there'll be a lot of cool companies built in that space. So lots of really interesting stuff. And I'm interested in, again, the majority of all of it, the one area that I'm personally not fascinated by, and again, the great investors that do focus on that, are things that end up selling to traditional school districts and all of that. What, according to you, are the top three or top one, two things that keep a creator on a platform when they have so many other places to go now? Yep. So I think, I mean, look, long term, I think it's the same as any sort of building any sort of technology product where what keeps a creator on, on a platform is, I mean, quality of product and quality of service. But that's sort of an obvious thing. One of the, I guess, unintuitive things we found is a lot of this space is still very influencer driven. So for every single creator, there are typically other creators they look up to, role models of theirs, if you will. 
And if you acquire those role models, it helps not just with acquisition of the long tail, but also retention. So that's something we focused a lot on. As I said, you know, a lot of these influential creators, we ended up, we ended up not just sort of having them on our platform, but truly become truly befriending them. And early on that entail going to lots of conferences, lots of events. I mean, Don, I mean, all our influential creators had my personal cell phone number and could call me at any single point. But once we got them, that unlocked everyone else. And as long as we retain them, everyone else retained them. What are frameworks you have to prioritize features uh, or, or roadmap for a product? Oh man, if anyone, if anyone knew, right? Like it's one of those things that as a, as a, as a startup, it's always sort of a, de- a debate. I mean, it started off with like, you know, the founder, CEO decides the entire framework and then then you sort of build build a pattern from there. I mean, what the place we've sort of settled on now, especially then this is probably, I'll answer first for a more mature organization where we are and then talk about for a startup. But for a mature organization, um, what we found is, Basically, we have product teams or pods where each product, like, you know, work on a subset of the product. And ideally, each one is focused on sort of a, a, a KPI they have to drive. So for one team, it could be, you know, increasing, in, reducing how long it takes for a creator to get a sale. For someone else, it could be, you know, increasing the GMB from this feature or whatever. And then I found you let the product manager sort of come up with how to solve the problem so it doesn't get to the point where you're sort of you know micro managing what people need to build because while that can work okay it it, it long term you're not going to get the smartest and brightest people working in your company um so that's sort of how we do it now early on i think it was again early on it was the same thing applied to a single metric um and for us i told you it was gmv but really that was a good litmus test to make sure you weren't sort of building random stuff the one other thing I would like to point out is that we were pretty good about, but we should have been even better about, is not doing random ass features just because one big customer wants them. We were, again, pretty good about it, not perfect about it, but very easy trap to fall into early on where you have this one big customer that says, they'll come on board if only you do this one thing, but this one thing is kind of random and doesn't make sense. So try and stay as far as possible from that trap. Great, great point. And, and I think especially in, in sort of these SaaS companies that does tend to happen, right? Where, you know, one large customer yep. can actually completely dictate your roadmap. Uh, and yep. then you realize that the things that you've built actually don't apply to a whole bunch of other users. Exactly. Right? And a lot of times less is more with building products. There's a lot of reasons to not do that. Yeah, yeah. An interesting question here, and it's sort of maybe less applicable to Teachable, given that you started monetizing pretty early and, you know, Yep. Looked at GMV as your uh, as your big sort of north star metric, uh, but an interesting question for from other folks that you know, how do you think about and especially given that now that you invest and you look at a bunch of startups, what's the right time to start monetizing? How do you think of you know that that this place, uh, this particular pivot point in your journey where you know uh, a product should start monetizing? So I'm an I'm a pretty old school type of person there where I have a very strong preference for companies that monetize from as close to the beginning as possible. And again, monetize is different from like making a profit, right? Like as in hmm. like I, your margins don't necessarily like for some businesses, maybe your margins aren't great, but like um, I have a strong, strong preference for making money from as close to early on as possible. And of course it's exceptions like, you know, like social networks, all of that. But again, I'm not a great, very, very, consumer type of investors. That's not a world I understand super well. And obviously you have Facebook and all of them doing totally great. 
But so for me, I have a very strong preference for companies that learn how to monetize early on. One, it builds a habit in the culture. Two, it, it, I mean, it allows you to raise money on your own terms. I mean, we were, we always raised money on our own terms, not because we were profitable, but we were always like, we could stop hiring people for six months at any given point and turn profitable. And that gave us a lot of leverage while fundraising. I mean, so we, we had a very unconventional fundraising path because of that sort of monetization. Like, I mean, the last round we raised was probably two or three years before we sold and we raised $4 million at $130 million pre. And we raised it only from the people we wanted to. And the only reason we could do that is we had all the leverage in the world. We could say no to all the investors that wanted to buy 20% of our company. And that would not be possible were we not sort of independently making money on our own end. So I'm, again, very old school in that way, but I personally have a very strong preference for that. Does product market fit happen once in a product life cycle or do you need to revisit as market conditions change? I think I think the first distinct moment of product market fit is sort of special and you have to sort of monitor that you keep having it. But I do think it is a little bit of, hey, we have product market fit for our core value proposition. But then sometimes, and I actually can take another question as well because it's very related. They are, you know, this question says Teachable has been building Discover for creators in beta. What product market fit are you trying to solve yeah. this proposition? That's an interesting question because that's a good example, right? We clearly have product market fit on our core product, but we soon realized um, that, hey, we want to now do different things. And Teachable Discover is our attempt to actually drive distribution to creators, which is something we didn't do before. And that's and there we're finding product market fit all over again. Like it's again like starting from scratch where now this side product of ours to search for product market fit all over again. And candidly, I can tell everyone on the call, we don't have it yet to discover. We're still sort of stumbling and we're still sort of in this early stage. So what will happen as an organization is once you mature, your core product will have product market fit, which you always sort of keep an eye out for competition, all of that. But you'll soon realize you want to start doing other things as well. And the product market fit for your first core value proposition doesn't carry over automatically. You have to almost start from scratch where all these different initiatives will have to start looking at product market fit all over again. Um, so I think that becomes a bigger deal, not so much continually evaluating your core PMF, but trying to find it repeatedly on all the new things you're trying to do. This stuff about creating a board for your own company or interacting with other founders is very new to me. Any reading materials or books that will help you understand this part of the business? And in fact, I would, I would sort of broaden that question a bit and say, what helped you sort of figure this bit out? And, and you, of course, said that, you know, you mentioned having a co-founder, of course, sort of helps. But now, as you invest in other folks, uh, what is helping you? Uh, what sort of advice are you giving to founders who are trying to find sort of the right people to jam with? Right. Yep, absolutely. So the thing that was most helpful to me, and the good thing is this is now becoming more and more prevalent, is when we raised money, we ended up raising money from a lot of experienced founders that have been there and done that before. Like we had the founders of Weebly, the founders of Twitch, the founders of Angelus, the founders of Living Social, the founders of Apple. Like, you know, we had like maybe 10, 20 companies, founders as our investors. And I think that was so incredibly valuable when it came to building the company. Um, the interesting thing is you, you know, I thought it would be very valuable from the perspective of, you know, specific learnings and helping me, you know, actually run my business. Turns out it was more valuable for the psychological aspects where very often we would, you know, run into a difficult situation and I would talk to someone, one of our investors, and 
find out that at their company that was theoretically very successful, things were even worse and it was very psychologically comforting very often to find out that just startups are hard and, you know, it's okay for things to go a certain way. But to me, yeah, the sort of hack around this is like, if possible, try and raise money from founders that have been there and done that before. It'll be the most, you know, sort of valuable investors you have. Um, and it'll be tremendously psychologically comforting and it'll make the entire journey much more worth it. The discussion today too, right? Like what is the first thing to look for? I think you can divide a company to sort of two phases. Phase one is until your product market fit and phase two is after that. And, and until your product market fit, that's really all that matters. And the only thing that, the, the only sort of tangible things you should be doing until that point are, building product and talking to customers and sort of making that iteration process work as fast as possible until you make something that people want. Um, after that point, there's a million different things that can happen and should happen. But until that point, I think that is, that is the most important thing. I mean, someone having had a question too about like, how do I raise money without having a product? You can raise money without having a product, but I think it's just living life on a hard mode unless you, you know, might be a founder that has done this before or you're a repeat founder or you have a really strong team, you can do it. But my advice as much as possible would be, you know, hack around it, build a product, show investors you can build a product. I mean, there's great no-code tools out there. There's, a, you know, a lot of ways of hacking around it and it's going to make your life so much easier if you actually, you know, are able to establish that then go out and raise money with a business plan, which again, certainly is possible when you're just like living life on hard mode. Ankur, thank you so much for your valuable insights today. And uh, yep. you know, th- thank you so much for candidly sharing answers with us. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining us today. And thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining in to listen to this episode of Path to PMF. Follow the story on Twitter and LinkedIn. Until next time.